You're listening to the Joy of Preparedness podcast, part four, with Anna Marie Jones from the CARD program. All segments of this program are available at www.thejoyofpreparedness.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the whole the continuity of operations. I mean, I think that's a, it's a big situation for businesses in particular. And the, at least the research that I've done, there's not a big percentage of businesses that are actually even thinking in that direction, far less highly active. I know you've worked with some of those, but it seems like most businesses, um, maybe the smaller businesses, they either don't have the resources or they don't lean in that direction at all. Well, well the thing is they don't perceive that they have resources. It takes so little to do some of this. So, for example, if there are any people who are in the restaurant business or food service somehow related businesses, a simple thought is, okay, post-disaster, which foods are you going to use and how are you going to do that? So if you were at home, you would know, okay, first and foremost, you eat the fresh stuff that's literally sitting on your counter and will go bad. You don't crack into your refrigerator. In fact, you try not to open your refrigerator to keep, you want to keep the cold in. You wouldn't be doing things like eating the stuff in your freezer until it's time, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. then lastly, you want to crack into things like hands because they'll be fine, you know, uh, six months from now. So having that mindset about food and food stock and your food preparation, unbelievably helpful. If you're a restaurant, awesome to know that a plan, especially if you've lost power, is let's make sure that food doesn't rot and go to waste. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are horror stories from blackouts in different places where restaurants and stores didn't understand this concept and they wanted to um, close down to make sure people didn't storm the store. Mm. Okay, you can imagine how angry the community is when your local store literally shuts the doors. They'd rather have food rot in the closed store than to give it out to the community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine the level of resentment that the community then has once that store opens again. Yes. So just thinking in advance can give you that Mm -hmm. opportunity to do the right thing Mm -hmm. in the crisis. Mm -hmm. And if you do the right thing in a crisis, people tend to want to support you. Mm -hmm. I like what you're saying, though, about the post-disaster. Because I've thought for a long time that if you can go there and think about what happens after something has happened, and what do you need to do there? It feels more comfortable to me than actually worrying about preparing for that disaster. It's more like the recovery side and thinking from that recovery side as to what do I need to do now. I mean, that's mitigation, right? It's why we have embraced it is the everyday brilliance that is your resilience because the disaster itself is a really short, short mm-hmm. time span, right? Mm-hmm. Just it, it just comes and goes in an instant. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at any major disaster and you'll see the truth of that. 9-11 was a terrible, terrible short moment. Mm-hmm. The after effects will go on for generations. Right, 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 right. right? And if you look at Loma Prieta, because we're heading on our 25th anniversary of that in October, the earthquake took but a few seconds to happen. Mm-hmm. How we treated each other goes on and on and on. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I try not to focus on that short-term immediate piece, but look at how do you build your capacities and your relationships such that the earthquake is just one of the many things you handle well. Right, right. Because ultimately, isn't that what all of the disasters will be? Mm -hmm. I want the next earthquake to just be one of the many things I handled well and was able to help my community through. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm, right. <laughs> Richard, you're having a way too good a time with that. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about kids and pets. 
awesome. My hope is that we will get more opportunity for kids to be part of all things to do with preparedness, response, and recovery because kids are awesome and resilient and parents are more willing to do things when it immediately helps children. There are many, Mm -hmm. many, many parents in the world who would not have embraced the preparedness conversation except for the fact that they have a child and that child might have been in school or some program and then that kid brought home, hey, mom, dad, I have to do this thing, this preparedness thing. Um, The thing for parents to remember is that kids will respond to not the disaster, but they will respond to the way the adults around them respond. And if parents could just own that piece, they would change what they say. They would certainly change what they do. Um, And for kids, you really don't want to instill that level of fear and drama and trauma in a child. Mm -hmm. So making preparedness easy and that the kid is being helpful and smart. I mean, there are a hundred nice positive words. Having the kids just take that active piece, you know, hey, you're packing your backpack. Let's get, what are some of your favorite things? Get some of those things in there, right? Bam. It doesn't have to be filled with the bad news. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's a great habit. Imagine if we had a whole generation of kids growing up thinking this is totally normal to just think for the future and to not waste and to be able to mobilize your assets. Yeah, I mean, we, they, they model whatever their parents are doing, you know. I mean, so if the parents can take that on, then it's, gonna, it's just going to reverberate back and forth to each other. There's just lots of goodness of having kids who have that level of sensibility about here's what's really important. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. parents would change what they say if they realized how much it impacted kids. One of the agencies we worked with, we were doing a, a, a training all for parents and caregivers. And we got to the point in the class where we're talking about the words that come out of your mouth and how you hear things. So the scenario is, okay, pretend you're an eight-year-old kid and you're standing next to whoever it was you lived with when you were eight and you're standing in front of wherever you lived when you were eight and that place is on fire. Okay, it's burning. There's nothing you can save. Now I want you to pretend you're that eight-year-old and this is what the adults around you were saying. We've lost everything. I knew something bad was going to happen. Why do things like this always happen to us? What are we going to do now? And I asked the audience, okay, how would you feel if you were that eight-year-old kid? What do you think they said? Terrible things. Yeah. <laughs> they said it felt really bad, of course. They felt um, scared. Mm-hmm. They felt, um, in some cases, guilty. Mm. In some cases, um, um, nervous that something else was going to happen. And I said, great. Now, let's. you're that same kid. Those are the same people. It's the same house, and it's the same fire. But here is what you're hearing. Thank goodness you're okay. We are so blessed. We're all fine. Look at these incredibly generous responders and volunteers. Yeah, very How do you feel now? And everybody says the same thing. Loved and this, that, and the other. And then people always generate other things. Like in the first version, you're really focused on the material loss. Mm -hmm. In the second version, you are really being pressed to see what's really important, that you are important, the fact that we all got out, that people are here to help us. Mm -hmm. It's a completely different Mm -hmm. world. One of the women in the class, she bent her head, and when she looked up, the tears were just flowing down her face. And so 
she spoke Spanish, so we, through an interpreter, she told us the story of after 9-11, she had picked up her five-year-old daughter and was holding her daughter in her arms and rocking back and forth, just saying out loud, oh, dear God, what's going to happen to us? Oh, dear God, where are we going to go? Oh, dear God, what should I do? Right? Just over and over crying, holding her daughter in her arms. Mm. Right? And what she said was, it was during that exercise that she started to understand something. Her daughter had been waking up screaming and Mm. talking about God. God, where are you? God, where are you this? God, why won't you answer me? God, why won't you help my mommy? God, 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 God. And this family was very, very religious. They perceived that her daughter was possessed Mm. because she was just waking up screaming and it had a lot to do with God. And what she realized when we were going through that exercise was that this little girl, what she was saying was, why wouldn't she? Re- why wouldn't God respond? Because she had heard mommy call out to God, but she never heard God reply. Mm. So she was working all of this trauma out in her dreams. And mm-hmm. so this woman had her moment where she realized, oh my goodness, this is what had caused this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, the agency um, who hosted the training offered her counseling in Spanish and counseling for her daughter. Mm. And after the training, they waited for the translator. They All of her friends came over and basically did variations of the thanking me because this had been a huge, huge drama for this family. Mm. That this little girl was seemingly possessed and screaming about God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the mother had never connected it that she had made her daughter have that experience mm-hmm. by just by virtue of how she had sure. responded. And mm-hmm. I, after that, um, we really started to think about um, how could we help more parents to see that this could be a beautiful conversation. Mm-hmm. You can help your kids to be better humanitarians, you know, have the kids step up and help people and being just being great. Kids are great at this. Kids mm-hmm. don't carry the worry. It's the adults that put the worry into the kids. Mm -hmm. So kids can be all about the positive part of it, the community part of it, the health part of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and to practice with your children what to do during during a disaster, what what where to go, so that they're confident in what they're doing, and they have the toys and the photographs and things that that they're really delighted to see in their emergency kits and things like that is really important. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and I've had parents say that, you know, they try not to even call it a disaster kit, and it's just the kit. Mm -hmm. And the kit just stands for, you know, that thing. When something goes wrong or if you need something, it's probably in the kit. Mm -hmm. If you get an unexpected opportunity to go to somebody's house, you got a kit. You know, it's that. So... I don't know why I sort of liked this particular one, but you have here a safety kept in place kit, which is skip, by the way, in case you didn't catch that, Richard. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, so, Change yeah, that. so there's different ways of being able to talk about the same thing without it necessarily meaning that, okay, we're preparing for something that's, that's the, quote, unquote, a disaster. Yeah, the safety kept in place kit is basically a baggie that is filled with a few supplies. Um, we've got, you know, a whistle and there's a flashlight and there's some tissues and a glow stick and sharpie marker just some things and we use that to teach people resourcefulness Mm -hmm. it's basically the macgyver class it is the class Mm -hmm. where you can literally pull open a junk drawer go to um, your office supply cabinet but by the time you're done with the class 
you can look at anything and see how you could turn that into a tool to help you with your preparedness or response. Mm-hmm. And people leave just dizzy on how creative and clever they were. And the kids never stop generating answers. Kids will keep playing the game because it's a game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Kids will come over to you long after you say it's over. And they'll say, I thought of something else. I thought of something else. Right, right? right. That's what you want. You want kids who just can look at stuff and see a hundred different uses for it. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very green way to live. It helps the kid. It helps their brain develop. We've had senior centers bring us in, not because they were interested in preparedness, but because they liked the fact that it's a brain-stimulating activity. Mm-hmm. And it's part of their desire to help their client base um, deal with not getting Alzheimer's. You mm-hmm. Keep your brain active. Keep your brain learning. And you know, being able to look at stuff and just seeing 100 different applications right. is an excellent form of brain training yeah we we lose that ability to to see from multiple angles you know as some of us reach yeah. these ages you know <laughs> um some have not of course but um it, it we lose that capability it's not quite as flexible we see things a little bit more black and white you know we can't quite go into those areas but again just these kids over at the house i mean just the the, the thing they just, they just keep running with stuff and they're really great ideas mm-hmm. you know some of them may not be quite so practical but they just stay with the idea they just run it out yep. you know until they're done with it and that's just like so helpful when you need creative things and you want people to have multiple ways of approaching the same situation really really helpful and it's a brilliant disaster skill because yeah. in a disaster you're not necessarily going to have the kits you hoped you had and things aren't going to go necessarily the way you want them to go mm-hmm. so that ability to generate plan b plan c plan d mm-hmm. is the skill set mm-hmm. and it doesn't have to be attached to terrible things it can be attached to hey this is awesome i can think of so many different ways to use you know this roll of tape or you know right. that pack of tissues you know. right 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 Pets. Ah, pets. I'm telling you, if I could redo the preparedness world, (laughs) one of the places I would go is around pets because people are crazy for their animals. I mean, I have to believe we've got people listening now, and they're crystal clear. They're going to make life and death decisions based on their pets. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, that's what pets are for us. They're our source of unconditional love, and they are so unbelievably important for our emotional health and wellness So pet preparedness becomes a much bigger deal. People can do it without the fear and threat because they love their cat or their dog or their bird or their whatever. Mm -hmm. And if you do the right things for your pets, you're actually making everybody safer. I used to tell the story of my former downstairs neighbor. I, I recently moved, but the neighbor I had for years she was wild for her cats, right? She just loved, loved, loved her cats. Her cats are the world to her. And every time she would go on vacation, I would be the one who would, you know, feed the cats. So after doing this for years and years and years, I would still go down for the pre-meeting where she would bring out (laughs) all the pieces of paper. And, you know, it's like the list of people who, if I'm unable to fulfill my cat sitting responsibilities, who should I call? The vet numbers, the vet release form, you know, what medications, you know, their feeding schedule. I mean, honestly, I've, I've babysat for human kids whose parents didn't do anywhere near that level of planning. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is that she made our whole neighborhood safer because she took on things with that level of zeal, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And it meant that 
certainly our household was safer. I was on the top floor. She was on the bottom floor. You know very well that someone who cares that much about her cats, she's not going to be the one who leaves something on the stove. She's not going to be the one who leaves the door open. She is not going to do anything that would endanger the cats. And so her safety was going to basically impact me on the top floor. And she didn't do any of those things because, oh, well, we wouldn't want anything to happen to Anna Marie. No, she was that level of zealous because nothing was going to happen to those cats. Those cats were her human children in this lifetime, right? Mm -hmm. They were just her little furry kids. Mm -hmm. And it matters. So people who are willing to do things, you know, get the microchip in the the cat or dog, and just knowing that that's what's important, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? We had a, a woman who she had, I think it was llamas, and I forget what the other animal was up on her property. She lived in Penaluma. And when she came to the class, she said, okay, she was going to take the advice. So what she did was she created a little flyer that had the pictures of the llamas and the whatever the other animal was. And she told every neighbor, that's how she went around and met neighbors, and she explained that if anything ever happens, all she asks is that people do whatever they can to help her animals. She mm. said there's nothing in her house that would matter more to her, nothing. And she would be forever in their debt if anything happens, if the animals are fine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that made her feel good. It made her meet all of her neighbors. You get to find other people who are equally freaky about pets and are willing to do this. <laughs> right. Because right. honestly, there's a lot of judgment people have about this. It's like, oh, you're the crazy cat lady. And it's like... No, I'm actually not a crazy cat lady. I'm sort of a crazy anything lady for this. You know, it, it could be a cat. It could be a dog. I don't care. If you love it, I'm all good for us doing whatever we can to make your life work. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that my downstairs neighbor had all of the other neighbor's numbers written down and all of that, unbelievably useful. Mm-hmm. Right? Unbelievably. Mm-hmm. So taking on pets with that extra level of zeal makes the whole community safer. And then Mm -hmm. there are the other charming things. I've had several people put whistles on their animals' uh, collars. Mm -hmm. So that way, you know, if you've got a dog, put that little whistle, and man, when there's an emergency and that dog comes to you, that dog is actually coming to you with a whistle around Mm -hmm. their neck. Yeah, yeah. Well, before we get off that, I, um, I was glad that you mentioned llamas because we here in Sebastopol, we have the larger animals, you know, that truly are very important to people also. I mean, like the llama situation. I mean, llamas are pretty easy to love, actually, unless they spit at you, but um, which they do. Um, but but the large animal situation also. So the Humane Society here has been really great about talking with people for as far as emergencies go. I mean, dealing with your smaller pets, but then also dealing with these larger animals. And what do you do with these larger animals when some when some sort of a disaster happens or they get loose how do i know what to do with the cows that might come you know how do i know how to do that so they've been really helpful in being able to try to set that up locally too and that is really um helpful because big animals it requires a much larger level of logistical understanding of how it works but doing all those things having all your vet information backed up having your animals you know chipped or tagged all of that matters and then for the small things, the cats, the dogs, there's lots of things owners can do. I had one friend who taught her cat how to jump into the cat carrier on command. Mm. Now, this took some effort, granted, because mm-hmm. the cat is not a fan of the cat carrier. Mm-hmm. But she wanted to make sure that the cat was crystal clear that when she made a certain command, that cat was going to jump into the cat carrier. 
because that would be the best way to do it. You bet. Yeah, yeah. Carmen, are you there? I am. Oh, wonderful. So Carmen is from Become Independent, and I'm going to have you pronounce your last name. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Carmen Inestroza from Become Independent, and I am the Director of Community Living Support. And and I we wanted you to call in to talk about how CARD uh, supported you in preparing your clients. What kind of clients do you s- serve, and how do you serve them? Um, currently, we're serving about 210 development, developmentally disabled adults. And what we do is assist them to live independently. All our folks live in their own apartments. Um, some have roommates. Some have live-in um, caregivers. Um, but they all live in their own apartment, and that's what our job is, to make sure that um, we train them to do so. And part of that training is being ready in case of a disaster. And we have been lucky enough to uh, connect with Anna Marie and CARD. And um, i got to tell you, before that connection, we really didn't know what direction to go in. And um, with the training that we have received, we have been able to train our staff so that they will be ready and prepared. In turn, that allows them to go out into the community like we did over in Napa and help our folks who are living independently. So because our folks were were, um, prepared, they were able to go out make sure that their homes were safe, and then go out and help our folks that we serve. Uh, my understanding is that your staff, one, were a little reluctant to do disaster preparedness to begin with, um, and that kind of shifted, and they appreciated it, but that they were able to respond to each of your NAPA clients after the earthquake within 30 minutes. Yes. Um, it was within 30 minutes that we had... Uh, boots on the ground, if you will, and they were out there um, going to people's homes. Um, We were making phone calls, uh, making sure that everyone was safe and um, would be able to shelter in place, because basically that's what we're teaching everyone, is to be able to shelter in place. We've seen and heard the horror stories of um, disabled folks going to shelters uh, and we want our folks to be able to either stay in their own home or have a community buddy that they can go to in case of an emergency. When you contacted your clients after the Napa earthquake, how? what was their condition? Well, it was, it was a whole gamut, Richard. Um, we had one house that was red-tagged, and an elderly lady who lived there. We had to get her from Napa and take her up to Yauntville so that she could stay with family. Um, Other people had uh, glass and uh, figurines, tables turned over, TVs on the floor. I mean, it was was pretty bad. And what staff was able to do was get in there and assist our guys to get things situated, um, keep it, put it back into somewhat of a safe uh, environment, and then move on to the next person. 
but but the clients were not as stressed as you would have anticipated. I am assuming. No, actually, they did really well, um, and I think it, it is because of all as the continued training that we do with them. Um, we have training modules that we take into people's homes. Um, if they live in a complex where a few other folks live, we will have them all come over to one of the apartments and we'll put this training on. And that accomplishes two things. Not only are they trained in earthquake preparedness and disaster preparedness, but they get to meet their neighbors. You'd be surprised how, how many of our folks didn't even realize that they had a peer living in the same complex as them. And so it was getting those connections together so that they could help one another if if that was needed. I, I just want to tell you, Carmen, this is Anna Marie. Um, I have such fond memories of working with Becoming Independent, as does uh, Lars Eric, my colleague. Um, and part of it is is that in the very beginning, there was all of that usual, uh, you know, this was a hard topic to really embrace, and people had that level of concern and all of that. And when they took this on, when they embraced this and really owned the conversation, you really can't ask for more or better than how they took it on. And to have that level of camaraderie and spirit and have it be part of the agency's culture and to really own not just that they needed to be as an agency prepared, but their people needed to own it. Their people needed to be ready in their home so that they could step up. They brought preparedness into the homes of all of the clients they serve. Mm -hmm. So this is genuinely, genuinely that level of one business taking it on. It, it has made a difference for everyone who works there. It now makes a difference for every client they have. And by extension, the entire community gets better and stronger. Mm -hmm. And in all of these years, and they've had turnover, turnover of leadership and turnover of many things, they've kept that culture growing and getting stronger. And now they work with many of the emergency partners from the community, and they are leaders in the community for this. And so to watch them go from that level of trepidation of this conversation to owning it with this level of power and integrity is just, you know, we were teary-eyed gleeful hearing about mm. how well um, you guys did yeah, during the Napa earthquake. Yeah, you sent me an email and I just <laughs> flew off the right. chair. So, so, Carmen, I mean, and with what Anna Marie just said, I mean, do you, do you, from within the organization, was there something in particular that sort of helped the organization to turn the corner to take it on, or was it a gradual thing, or what's what's your perception? Well, it was slow at first. I mean, it, we have lots of committees at BI because we are we are a big organization, and Everyone looked at it, oh, gosh, now we got another committee. Now we got to take on one more thing. And, and that was in the beginning. But it didn't take long to see the importance of this. Living, you know, here in California, you've got to be ready. Mm -hmm. And it took just a few people to just keep the, the ember going so that, you know, and, and fanning that ember so that it turned into a flame and we were able to just, like, jump into it with mm -hmm. both feet. Mm -hmm. What is staff saying now about disaster preparedness? I'm sorry, Richard, what, I didn't hear what, you. What are staff saying now about disaster preparedness? Oh, that this is the best thing that we could ever have done. I mean, because now the, the proof is in the pudding, if you will. We've seen it work. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, here we have been doing this for several years, all these drills, all these um, uh, in-home trainings, talking about it, handing out monthly flyers. Um, I mean, this is something that we have ingrained in people. Um, you know, here, here's an example. Now, when we do trainings at, at Becoming Independent, every time there's a training, they have a drawing at the end of the training. And they used to give out maybe a Starbucks card or a, a, a gas card or something. Now, that, that prize is a piece of equipment that you would use for your um, emergency kit. It's, it's um, a supply of water. It's a, a brick of food. It is a, a crank radio. I mean, these are the kind of things that we're giving out now. And see, people really appreciate that. Carmen, there's a, there's a big smile on Anna Marie's face over that. Oh, I'll bet. <laughs> She's I'll really bet. liking that thought, that, that that's what you do. Well, I, yeah. I, I so remember the conversation so many years ago when we were talking about the different types of food that people can have. And, you know, there are those disaster bricks that basically taste like, you know, dirt mixed with sugar and butter. <laughs> um, uh-huh. And there are benefits to having that sort of disaster food. One, it lasts for a very long time, but also... No one is going to crack into it just because they're hungry, right? If exactly. Although we've had some folks who, who yeah. have. Yeah. And, yeah. And, you know, after the first couple of bites, it was like, oh, my gosh, why did I do that? Right. And but, it, it'll keep you alive. It'll keep you sustained and all of those sorts of things. But you tend not to have many people who just crack them open. But the other thing is, and it's one of the other success stories that Becoming Independent has, is that my colleague, Lars Eric, who loves to teach the incident command class, um, and it's one of our favorite classes. That's the class where you you can learn how to mobilize um, your team and how right. you can really just form a team and get stuff done. Um, one of the st- staffers at uh, Becoming Independent, she took the training as, par- as being a staffer, but she...